Migraine Canada presents Migraine Talks with Dr. Elizabeth Leroux. A podcast to learn, share, and live better. Please remember, the content of this podcast does not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Discuss all decisions regarding your care and treatment options with your healthcare provider. I'm not too sure how to deal with medical appointments anymore. I come prepared. I have my diary ready, notes on the treatments I tried. I wrote down my questions. Sometimes I have to address issues at work. Then I sit at the doctor's office. I know I have 10 minutes. It seems like mission impossible. How can we discuss all of this? Last time, I had experienced a new type of aura, during which I lost my speech and became dizzy. I was very concerned. My husband was worried and told me to make sure I would check it with the doctor. He wanted to know what to do if it happens again. But once again, no time. We barely brushed off the surface of things. We changed medications, but I could barely follow what was going on. I left the office with tears in my eyes. I felt defeated. I understand that doctors are very busy. But how am I supposed to manage things now? Another issue is that my physician seems to think I am very anxious, and that causes the migraines. Well, I won't deny that sometimes I'm not too sure what to do, and after a few days off work, I become stressed out because I know I will have to catch up on a pile of stuff as soon as I recover. I did try meditation, but I just can't fit this in my routine. My brain won't let me slow down. I'm running after my breath constantly. Easy to say, manage your stress. But when you live with frequent migraines, it's easier said than done. In today's podcast, we welcome our guest, Susan Cape. Susan is a second-year PhD student at McMaster University and the School of Social Work. She completed a BA in Human Services from Athabasca University in 2016 and an MA in Gender Studies and Feminist Research from McMaster University. While Susan spent most of her career working in women's services in the area of addiction and mental health, her therapeutic training in trauma-informed care and feminist counseling has led her to question traditional forms of service delivery, informed by the medical model, which has been foundational to her research and practice. Susan now operates uh, her own private practice called Mending Minds in the Hamilton community and has developed and facilitates a local support group for migraine patients. Susan's research seeks to explore, from the standpoint of women diagnosed with migraine, how diagnoses and treatments are socially organized within clinical medical settings in Ontario. Her hope is that uncovering these processes contributes to our understanding on how to improve care for patients with chronic, difficult to treat, and often contested illnesses. So hello, Susan, and welcome to this podcast interview for Migraine Canada. Thank you so much for accepting uh, to speak and to discuss today. Thank you very much for having me here. So, you know, let's talk, let's start with maybe a bit about, uh, about yourself and uh, your experience with migraine. And I was curious, reading your bio, you know, has, has this influenced your career decisions? Yes. So I started getting migraines when I was in my mid-20s. Um, 
And at the time, I didn't know that they were migraines. I actually didn't have a lot of headaches. I had vestibular symptoms. And so I went misdiagnosed for at least a year and a half to two years. Um, they thought I had Meniere's disease or they thought I had um, just some type of inner ear issue. And then eventually I did see a neurologist and I was diagnosed with migraine. Um, but over the years, I worked in nonprofit um, environments and it was very stressful. And I just continued to work even though I had these chronic migraines and it became very, very difficult to maintain. So eventually I left my work in the nonprofit sector and I decided that I wanted to switch things up a little bit. Um, so I went back to school and I did my master's degree. Um, and I decided that I wanted to do some research on migraine from a social side point of view, because I was looking around and I was noticing that there was research out there on migraine, but a lot of it was very scientific. It was meant for doctors. Um, it was meant for scientists and neurologists, and it wasn't really meant for social scientists. It wasn't really trying to understand what migraine patients go through. It wasn't trying to understand what was going on in the medical system and why are we misdiagnosed so often. It wasn't trying to get out those pieces of information that I thought was really, really important. Um, so I did my master's and I started to kind of unravel some of those pieces of information. And then I decided I should go into doctoral work and really get into that type of research. And um, I feel very passionate about doing it, actually. And we will talk, we will definitely talk more about the uh, access to care uh, bit a little bit later during this interview. So migraine affects three women for one man, and it, it probably contributes to the stigma on migraine. Um, so tell us about your experience in trauma-informed care and feminist counseling. Yeah, so it's really interesting how those things kind of connect for me. So I started looking at feminist counseling when I was still working in nonprofits. And what I really like about feminist counseling in particular is that it understands issues from a social political point of view. So the theory is basically that um, oppressions, um, systemic oppressions that are happening in our system are what are actually causing a lot of our issues and challenges, um, issues around mental health, and that we react to those things. Um, but we're not necessarily the problem. The problem is outside of us. Um, so I was really, really fascinated by that take on um, theory and how that was applied in counseling and how feminist counselors really work to empower clients to challenge those systems. Um, so that was probably really influential as well in terms of connecting me to the type of research that I'm doing now and the type of work that I'm doing now, because the work that I'm doing in my research is really looking at those systems of care and wanting to challenge them a little bit um, so that patients don't feel so oppressed. So it's interesting to hear about this system because we, we live in very complex networks, but despite migraine being so common, um, people living with migraine often feel quite isolated, right? And that they, nobody understands and, and nobody seems to really know what's going on. 
Um, so uh, you started a support group for migraines. So how did that start and, and what did you learn along the way? Uh, it started actually just very casually in conversation with my neurologist. I had asked her if there were ever any support groups in person for migraine patients or um, chronic pain patients. And she had said at one point there was, but it kind of fizzled out and said, you know, what they really needed was someone, a patient to kind of take that on. And I was like, well, I'm a social worker. You know, I have the skills. I know how to facilitate groups. I know how to put something like this together. So why don't I just do this? Um, so she had offered some space at the hospital and helped me book that. Um, and I just, I, I kind of went with that and started advertising in her office. And I think she had also sent out the flyer to other clinics in the Hamilton area. area. Um, I had a friend who is also a social worker, who's also a patient of hers and who also has migraines. Um, who also worked with me on the group in developing it. And yeah, we just started doing these support groups in the Hamilton area out of St. Joe's. And it was really great. We had, we had a few groups before COVID hit um, once a month. And it was really great to start to have a community of people kind of come together and talk about what was actually happening with them um, how they were feeling, how they were getting through day by day with migraine and supporting each other. Was there any challenges dealing with these discussions or do you find that, what was the, the feedback you got from, from the, the people who attended the groups overall? The feedback, the feedback was really good. Um, the groups were quite small. And like I said, COVID kind of, you know, affected us building it over time. But generally, we would have maybe three, four people per group. Um, and the conversations were very productive. The group was set to be an hour and a half. We always ran over that. Um, we always found a lot of commonalities between each other, even though our migraines may have been brought on by different events or situations. Um, and I think there was a lot of relating to each other, which is something that I found really, really missing in the community. And I mean, People do it online. There are certainly online Facebook groups and other support groups out there that are offered online. Um, but I find the deficit with those groups is that I, I don't always find there's a lot of relating to each other in real time where you can have that real contact with one another. And I know I was certainly missing that. Um, and I think other people are missing that as well. So you have yeah. been a social worker, you have been exposed to trauma and, mm -hmm. um, and you, you, have, you live with migraine. Uh, you've seen a lot of people who live with migraine and I guess some people with quite severe migraine. And life with severe migraine can be quite close to hell sometimes. Is it an exaggeration to say that migraine can be traumatic? No, uh, not at all. And that is something that I have spoken about in um, presentations before where I've talked about migraine and mental health. And something that I kind of put together years ago, um, 
After about two years of struggling with migraine and especially not really knowing what I had at that time, I developed a lot of anxiety. And I would go to my doctor and my doctor would say, well, you have an anxiety disorder, you have a panic disorder, you have all of these different disorders. Um, and at the same time, because I was in social work, I was going to different trainings on trauma-informed care and what trauma was and how it affects clients. Um, and it kind of put two and two together. And I was like, I don't have panic disorder and I don't have generalized anxiety disorder or depression. I actually am responding to trauma because when you have migraine, especially you know, depending on your symptom profile, I guess it's different for everyone. But for me, I was in pain. I was having attacks of visual aura and vertigo and nausea that would come on at any time. Um, I would get cognitive issues randomly. Like I would, you know, forget where I live, forget my phone number for 30 seconds or so when I was walking the dog. This would happen when I was going to work on the subway, it would happen in the middle of teaching a class. It would happen in the middle of an event with a bunch of people who didn't know I got migraines. And so I think when you're in those situations, the symptoms themselves are very traumatic because it feels terrible. It feels like you're having a stroke. You don't know if you're gonna die. Um, you tell yourself it's just migraine, it's just symptomatic, but honestly, it really feels like you're going to die. Um, sometimes. And having to also have that added pressure of hiding it from people, hiding it from your colleagues, from your friends, from your, um, you know, the people that are around you, that adds more anxiety. Um, so for me, I would absolutely say having migraine was very traumatic. It is very traumatic. And that's something that you know, I've learned how to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but I do think a lot of people who struggle with chronic illness are definitely suffering from trauma um, and not just, you know, all of these different mental health disorders. It really falls under trauma. Yes, I, I will share something um, for, uh, for our listeners that I, I've had patients who've gone through things like cancer, for example, and uh, cancer is definitely no joke, right? So it's very difficult, very stressful, and sometimes life-threatening. But um, they said that the big difference between the cancer and migraine was that in cancer, they felt very supported and mm -hmm. they, they had like nurses to uh, help them, their, their friends and their family and their employers were, oh, you have cancer. So very supportive, very understanding. And with migraine, uh, I even had a patient say, well, you know what? I miss my cancer because then I had support and now I'm back with no cancer and just migraine and I have no support. This broke my heart. I remember that man very well. Um, and it just showed me, I was younger at the time. It just showed me how traumatic migraine can be. So now that we've, we've talked about how difficult it is, how can one with severe migraine um, deal with the emotional drain that that comes with it? Mm -hmm. That's a really hard question because I mm, I'm trying to think of how to answer this. Do I answer this personally or from a practitioner point of view? Because if I, if I really look at it from a personal point of view, I would classify myself as a work in progress. Um, I have not gotten it figured out. 
I think that for me, you know, you do all of those medical things, you take the medication that you're prescribed and you make those lifestyle changes and you, you do your research and you do all those do things. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Um, and when they don't, what I have found the most helpful is practicing acceptance, practicing mindfulness, um, finding my edge and pushing myself to that edge has been something that's been really important to me because I spent a lot of time over the years avoiding things because of my migraines. I would just you know, hide away from people and I didn't want to participate in life. I just went to work and came home and that was all I could handle. Um, and then I started to feel depressed and kind of sad because I was missing out on a lot of different aspects of life. Um, and so I just decided one day that, you know what, some days I'm going to feel awful and that sucks, but it's okay. I'm going to do this activity anyway, or I'm going to reach out and, and do this other thing anyway, because it's important to me that I try to live a life that's as normal as possible and that I'm as productive as possible. Um, and of course, there's limitations at times, but it's really hard because I also know there are some people who are dealing with chronic pain where they are in so much pain. And I'm actually in, in some ways fortunate that my migraines are more silent migraines. So the painful headaches is not something I have to deal with as often. Um, and when I do, honestly, I lock myself in my bedroom and I go to sleep. <laughs> the vestibular symptoms, I, I've actually found ways of trying to manage them. And, and I, I think I do manage them quite well. It's not easy, but um, I found ways of accepting and just calming myself down when they happen and managing them. I think that listening to you, there will be a need someday to do a podcast on vestibular migraine because it is uh, so much more common than, than we think uh, and extremely uh, disabling. So uh, thank you for sharing those stories with us. Um, so what would you sometimes in the clinic, because I know um, that you, you present on different types of approaches um, about self-care. And um, you, you've listened to many patient stories and of course you have your own experience. There, are there some tips about self-care that seem to be helpful for you or for the people that you, uh, you, uh, you work with? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because I've talked about self-care with a lot of different people and it's a subject that's come up recently with a lot of people. And we often think of things like having a bubble bath and, and relaxing and doing enjoying and joyful activities or things that you enjoy um, and for me self-care is actually a bit different so things that I actually like to talk to people about in terms of self-care things like setting boundaries saying no knowing what your limits are um, not being afraid to reach out to other people and telling them what you actually need Um, I think those things are really, really important for everyone, but they're really important for migraine patients because I feel like we minimize our symptoms often. We minimize our needs. Um, we want to be that person who is healthy and well and is able to participate with other people. Um, 
and do our jobs and all of these things, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And I, I think that sometimes we just have to be able to say, no, you know, this is what I can do and this is all I can do. And, and, and that's it and, and take time to take care of ourselves. So those boundaries I think are, are really, really important. The other thing that I think is really important is about perception. And this kind of goes back to what I was talking about before in terms of management. Um, the thing that's helped me manage my migraines has been changing my perception of what is going on with me. Because if I perceive the event as catastrophic and I'm having an attack and it's terrible and I just, I can't do anything, that perception is gonna limit me um, compared to me trying to shift my perception. And again, I'm a work in progress, but trying to think of things as, you know, it is symptomatic. Um, I know what it is. I've been through this many times before and I've handled it very well. Um, and I've managed to do things that I needed to get done at the same time and everything turned out okay. Um, so I think that shifting your perception a little bit is also important if you can do that. Listening to you, Susan, I, I hear how challenging it must be, but I think it's the path to take to find this balance between uh, pushing yourself, saying no, knowing your limits, listening to your body, and avoid catastrophization. So it is, it is something um, that can be learned. And, and I make the comment, sometimes I talk to my patients about going to therapy or psychotherapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. And people, you know, have a vision of what therapy is. And they, yeah. they look at me and they say, but I'm not stressed. <laughs> and uh, I wish sometimes that people would have this understanding of therapy as working on these aspects that you mentioned that are so, so important. So another thing that I hear a lot is I sometimes recommend different types of meditation and uh, one of which being uh, mindfulness, for example. Mm -hmm. and, and people tell me, I'm way too anxious. I cannot do this. Uh, so what would, have you heard this? And what would you say to someone who say, I'm too anxious to meditate? Yeah, I hear that a lot too. Um... And that's not true, that it's a myth, that that is a self-limiting belief. Uh, I think that people need to start small. And also people also have to challenge their view on what they think meditation is. Because I think a lot of people think meditation is you're sitting cross-legged in a room and you have to be perfectly still and silent. Um, and that's not what meditation is. There are so many different types of meditation. There is the meditation where you breathe and you focused on you focus on your breath for a period of time. It could be 30 seconds, it could be 60 seconds, it could be five minutes. You could have thoughts that enter your mind during those times, and you train yourself to look at those thoughts or observe those thoughts in that moment. But it's a skill that you need to develop over time. It's not going to happen right away. For some of my more anxious fidgety clients, um, and I actually fall under that category, I actually recommend types of meditation that have you doing something. So yoga can actually be very meditative. Um, progressive muscle relaxation is a process of meditation that 
um, consists of people clenching muscles and then releasing them and then noticing how they feel. So for people who are very anxious and have a lot of tension, that would actually be a really, really good strategy. So exploring what actually works for you and then practicing building that skill is really, really important. So absolutely, if you're an anxious person, you probably should be meditating. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I remember um, seeing a quote I actually included when I, I teach with medical students, and that if you should meditate every day half an hour, as you say, it can be less. But then the joke is, if you are very busy, you should meditate for enough, a full hour, right? So it, I remember I was shocked because we perceive our lives as we, we must go, go, go all the time. And, mm -hmm. and uh, this, this vision of meditation that it's time lost somehow um, but I see it as brain maintenance as a neurologist sometimes that you you just take time for, for these thoughts. And, and you're right, it's a skill. You know, you don't learn piano over a night. Uh, it takes quite a bit of practice. So, so let's pivot a little bit. And uh, I think we're all aware here and our listeners too, that access to care for people with migraine can be challenging. And you shared with us that your diagnosis was not obtained right away. Um, and people may struggle to find a headache specialist. Um, so I think you did some research on that. Could you mind to share your results or what you found? Yeah, so I'm in the process um, of doing my dissertation, looking at that more closely. So the type of research I'm doing, um, the methodology I'm using is called institutional ethnography. And institutional ethnography is a little bit different. Well, actually, it's a lot different from other types of qualitative research in that it kind of looks at um, how something is happening. So in terms of migraine care and in terms of our medical system, um, my research kind of wants to go into that system and look at how is it put together institutionally. And it believes that our behavior and our lives and our activities are orchestrated by those institutional ruling relations. So what I've started to do um, this past year was I started just to interview migraine patients and trying to understand the work that they do in order to get a diagnosis and treatment. Um, so that's kind of my starting point. And over time, as my dissertation work progresses, the idea is that I will find threads from these stories um, that kind of point me in a direction of where to start looking within the institution. And so those threads normally come out of disjunctures or tensions that, in this case, patients are feeling with the system. Um, so for example, in my master's research, something that um, I was looking at as a potential thread came from the fact that in primary care, when a patient goes in to see their family doctor, the family doctor assesses them um, using soap notes. That's how we document or, or physicians document their assessment. And there is a tension there between how a patient will go in with this of subjective embodied experience and how that experience is taken up by medical professionals um, as objective. And I say that in quotes. Um, 
And so that objective piece that they can measure and that they can assess is really often at odds with that subjective embodied experience. And there's a huge tension there um, between those two. And so that's kind of what got me hooked into looking at, okay, well, what is, what is the life cycle of a diagnosis? And how does that diagnosis come to be? And what happens when a patient is diagnosed? And how does that move through the system? Um, and what is the impact that that has on that patient? So there's, there's all these little pieces of that that I'm trying to kind of unravel right now and, and figure out um, how to go about this research. But that's kind of where I'm at right now. So it looks like you started at the very beginning, which is hearing, uh, hearing the stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is also why we want to run these podcasts is to hear more stories and understand better why the situation seems so difficult um, to access migraine care. So I, I wish you the best with your research, of course. In the future, let's dream a little. Um, what, what would you hope to see change in migraine care um, in Canada? Oh, there's so much. <laughs> <laughs> Long list. So, um, I think some of the things that immediately come to mind as an issue, um, immediately physicians, especially primary care physicians need more training in headache medicine. They need more training on how to recognize, assess, and treat migraine and what that actually looks like. Um, I think a lot of primary care physicians and, and people in general, even if they recognize migraine, um, they do so in terms of typical migraine, but they don't recognize things like silent migraine, vestibular migraine, um, those other categories of migraine get kind of put by the wayside. And a lot of those people end up in situations where they're misdiagnosed and, and they kind of get trapped in loops within the system. Um, but even patients with headache um, as their primary system or, or symptom, I think they often get um, neglected. They get treated as if what they have is psychosomatic, that it's not real. Um, if they're younger, if they're teenagers, they're told they'll grow out of it again, so they're not validated and they're not, they're not taken seriously. Um, I think that some physicians do bring bias to their work and that women um, who, like you said, are, are often migraine patients showing up in these settings, they're not taken seriously. I also think that physicians, and this is something that I'm exploring in a paper right now, need to work on interviewing and assessing skills a little bit differently. And again, I'm coming at this from the School of Social Work. I'm coming at this as a practitioner who works very differently. But I think that medicine in general needs to work on developing partnerships with their patients, um, effective working relationships where the patient is feeling empowered. Um, I think the patient needs to be validated and that those embodied experiences aren't being dismissed and that they are being taken seriously. Um, I know with me, I was misdiagnosed for so long because they were focusing on the fact that I had vertigo and all of the other symptoms that I talked about, like the visual aura and the cognitive disruptions and whatnot, 
were just kind of dismissed. So I wonder, you know, what was that all about and how could that have been done differently? Um, and could I have gotten a diagnosis sooner if those symptoms had been actually written down in my file, taken seriously and brought into that assessment differently? So those are some of the things that are on my mind right now in terms of looking at, um, you know, or, or trying to figure out what are the policies and how is discourse around migraine actually created and discourse around assessment created. Those are some of the things that I'm really interested in uncovering a little bit in my research. It's really fascinating. And I think you're, you're really bang on regarding this topic because we, we have, if we want things to change, we have to understand what's wrong. So that's, that's the right way to start. So Susan, I, I would like to thank you for sharing your, your experience, uh, ideas and expertise with our community. I certainly wish you the best in your projects. And I, I do hope we can do a follow-up interview uh, on this uh, to follow up with your research and, uh, and a bit more about your work. So thank you and uh, uh, good luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here today. Well, folks, that was an interesting interview, isn't it? There are three topics that came out of this interview I'd like to comment on. The impact of migraine on anxiety, function, and emotions, the diversity of migraine symptoms, and the lack of access to appropriate care for migraine patients. Susan made it very clear there is a fine line between pushing yourself and respecting your limits, between proactivity and acceptance. In my clinic, I meet everyday very strong people, women and men, who have found a way of balancing their lives, their schedules, and their emotions, and they really, they really amaze me. We should talk more about this and destroy forever the myth that people with migraine are only weak and unable to manage daily life. Really? Many of my patients with migraine are actually masters of management, considering their situations. How could we make this expertise gained from years of experience better known so people can learn from others? Hopefully, we shall see more support groups in the future. Second point is that Susan shared some details about vestibular symptoms and aura. Migraine is a disorder of the brain. And the brain, well, my friends, it is very complex and I spent quite many years looking at this very fascinating organ. It can produce many different symptoms. Some may seem strange, even sometimes unbelievable. But after years in the clinic, I have learned to keep an open mind when people tell me about new things, even if I have never seen or heard about them before. The case of vestibular migraine should be discussed in a future podcast, but in the meantime, you can find information about this condition in our website. And last and third thing, well, a very strong comment was made about the practice of medicine and how much time we spend when evaluating a person. And I say a person, not a patient. Thankfully, medicine seems to be moving in the direction of patient empowerment and shared decision-making. Well, at least in theory. In practice, how can we expect a GP to listen and interpret symptoms, make decisions, and provide much required explanations in less than 15 minutes while taking notes, looking at a screen and filling forms? Maybe we have to set up standards for the duration of chronic disease visits, including migraine. To help a person with migraine, you can't just look at an MRI or a lab result. You have to listen, and then you may have to explain a treatment plan. And to do this, 
time is of the essence. Ideas and solutions are out there, my friends. Together, we are stronger and we can make things change for the better. Stay tuned. And until then, be well. Migraine Canada is a not-for-profit organization. We improve the lives of Canadians affected by migraine and other headache disorders through awareness, support, education, advocacy, and research. This podcast does not replace a medical advice. Always consult your treating healthcare provider to make any medical decision. If you enjoyed the content of this podcast, listen to the 11 others from our 2021 series, available on your favorite platform. Remember that you'll find plenty of additional information on MigraineCanada.org. Is there a topic you'd like to hear about in the future? If you have suggestions or feel like sharing your thoughts, please email us at info at MigraineCanada.org and don't forget to check our website. We'd love to hear from you. 